I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 1. This morning we will read verses 16 and 17, and our sermon will concern verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus far the word of the Lord. May he give us its grace and form us under its teaching. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard your word and we pray for your mercy, that we might receive it. O Lord, make us a courageous people because of your gospel. O Lord, that in its weakness, O Lord, in the foolishness of the gospel, that we ourselves might find strength and courage to testify to the truth that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Father in heaven, we pray that you would build us up in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are we here this morning? Our building is plain. There are four white walls and a sermon. There's no ornate decoration. There's no impressive painting. No stained glass, there are no great columns, there are also no colored lights, there are no laser shows. Our worship is calm, we haven't got a rock band leading the praise of the people of God. There's nothing cool or unique about what we're doing There are no ceremonies, there's no pageantry, there's no processional, there's no recessional. We're simply a room full of people seated together with an ancient book open on our laps. And there's a man standing behind a podium wearing a goofy dress. What are we doing here? I mean, yes, we've sung, but the songs that we've sung are old. They don't sound like our culture. They're not entertaining according to the standards of this world. We've read together, of course we have, but what we've read, though joyful, has been serious. And it says things about us that frankly ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable. 
So why are we here this morning? Well, it certainly isn't to be entertained. And it certainly can't be that we desire to be popular. No, friends, it's because of what we want to hear. That is to say, it is because we want to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a message that we expect, a message that bears up bad news about who we are, good news about the person of Jesus Christ and what he did, and the most wonderful news that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. We're here to listen to, to hear, and to rejoice over the gospel. And in these two verses, these two profoundly important verses, verses that Martin Luther calls possibly the most important verses of the whole of the Bible, Paul tells us three things about the gospel. And this morning we are going to consider the first And then in two weeks, we'll consider the second and the third. This morning, we'll consider that the gospel is a message of power to be believed, from verse 16. It is a message of power to be believed. And then in two weeks' time, because Nathan will be preaching next Lord's Day, in two weeks' time, we will study that the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. Verse 17. And then again, after that, we will study from verse 17 that the gospel begins with faith and ends with faith. Begins with faith and ends with faith. And so let us take to the passage at hand. As we come to verse 16, it stands to reason that it follows. Verse 15. And within that verse that we left off just last Lord's Day, what we found was that the apostle told the church at Rome in his letter about his desire to come to them. He writes, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's his heart. It's his longing if we want to translate the word for eager in a different way. It's a deep desire. But then as we transition to verse 16, we have a different idea given to us. And Paul says something that, well, may make us a little bit confused. In verse 16, he begins, For I am not ashamed, ashamed of the gospel. Verse 15, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed. This negative proposition that Paul is not ashamed. It's a strange thing, really, and it doesn't sound a whole lot like the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with his writing and you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, even in the letter to the Romans, Paul is a strong and triumphal man. He speaks with absolutes and with quite a profound amount of strength and it's just a strange thing for him to say and we might ask ourselves the question well why in the world did Paul come to make this point here in the passage I mean which Christian in the world would ever admit to being ashamed of the gospel so I ask you this morning 
Would any of you admit this morning that you're ashamed of the gospel? So then why does Paul even say what he says? Well, we have to remember what he said in verse 15. That he's writing to the church in Rome. There's our context. We look to it to inform us a little bit of why Paul may say what he said. It's not a hard thing and not even something I really need to remind you of, but that Rome was the seat of power and was, if not the greatest ancient empire, certainly one of the greatest empires of antiquity. It was a place filled with wealth. It was a place of civil order where the armies of the Roman Empire defended its citizenry with absolute power where they extended their borders and their boundaries through warfare and diplomacy so that it grew and grew and grew to encompass almost the entirety of the European continent extending down into the Near East and up even to the border of Scotland where the Scottish tribes just said no. It was a place of social security, if you will. A place where the citizens enjoyed a voice, where they had a real society, a place where you could count on help if you had need, especially if you were a citizen. A place that had plumbing, a unique thing in the ancient world. A place that had bathhouses and there was a culture of bathing. But it was also a place of learning. A place where there were academies upon academies and the world of classical philosophy was taught. You see, the Romans and the citizens of Rome were thinkers. It's not too much to say that they were people of sophistication. They were also people of rhetoric who knew how to listen to a word and then interpret it in their minds. You see, Romans would have been very well seated Under the preaching of the word of God, they were conditioned to hear spoken words. They were the inheritors of the minds of Athens. And they were those who considered the ancient mysteries and wrote about them extensively. A people of great literacy. And in that context, Paul is saying, I long to come and to preach in this great city, to preach in this great capital, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am not ashamed of it at all. Again, you may ask the question, why would would he possibly be ashamed of the gospel? Why is this even a point to be made? Well, it's because of the substance of the gospel. It's because of the truth of the Christian religion. Its first proposition says something about us. The gospel highlights, firstly, the sinfulness of the mind, the hearts, indeed the will of humanity. Let me simply say, if you are eager to sell products... It might not be the very best thing to do to begin knocking on doors and tell people of their inability and the terrible state and the immoral character 
of their souls before God. It's not a good sales pitch, but it's true nonetheless. The first proposition of the gospel that Paul is touching upon. The second would be the absolute need for a Savior to be made right with God. That means a telling of the gospel says you are so bad in your minds, your hearts, and your will that the things that you think, the things you say, and the things that you do are all touched by sin. And you are incapable of doing good that will please God. You need a Savior. That's not a popular word. You can't do it. You need a helper. You need a redeemer. That's the second proposition of the gospel. The third is that God sent a Savior in the form of a child. Meek and mild, born in a manger, not with royal attire, but with cattle lowing as he was in their feeding trough. The humiliated king, not the glorious, triumphal arrival of a revolutionary, a king according to the world's standards. The fourth would be that the gospel says that he came and that he worked miracles. He did things in his life and ministry with people who were in need. He walked among the dirty of the world, not just with those that are high and mighty and noble. Jesus touched lepers. Jesus held dead children in his arms and gave them life. Jesus was with Galileans who were hungry by the sea rather than palaces filled with food and banquet and everything that the world can afford. Another proposition is that thousands of people followed him who taught all of these things and that all of those thousands were located in Judea. But maybe here is one of the most difficult And that is, in light of all the things that we just said about Jesus and about us, that this is the pivotal truth of the Christian faith. That the Savior, the King, was ultimately arrested and crucified as a criminal. According to the world, if they're looking on to the Christian faith and the propositions that we hold to and believe... They would say it just sounds like a failed revolt. Like a revolution that was put down. Your king was killed. Your leader was put to death. It's over. It's over. You're just a band of people with a lost cause. That's how the world would read the telling of the Christian religion whenever we rejoice and a crucified Christ. Again, you also have to hear the language of crucifixion with the ear of a Roman citizen. This is the most humiliating death afforded to men. This is death meant to make a statement, death meant to humiliate a man hanging naked publicly on a cross, crying out with no help. 
with the intention that everybody that passes by should mock him, spit on him, hate him, deride him, and not do what he did. It's the Roman government saying, don't follow this guy. And then lastly, there's an account, a proposition, the world would say hard to believe. That he was resurrected. That though he was dead and in the grave for three days, testified to by many witnesses, even his enemies, that though he was dead, he was raised from the dead. And that he lived 40 days amongst his disciples, teaching and preaching. And that he has ascended, gone up into heaven where he remains. Detractors of the gospel, whenever they heard this, they thought it was a silly message. They thought it was foolishness. They thought it was folly in the ancient city of Rome. A Jewish revolt gone wrong. And Paul says, this is what I'll preach. And I'll never be ashamed of any single one of its propositions. This is good news. This is a good and a pleasant message from heaven. And I'll preach it with a heart that is unashamed publicly. Because Paul has something within it that he marvels over. He calls it the power of God unto salvation for any who will believe. What do I make a big point of Paul saying that he is unashamed of the gospel? A few minutes ago I asked you the question, are you ashamed of the gospel? It was rhetorical. I intended to get you to ask the question deeply in your mind, in your heart. For you to answer it for you and before God. Often today it is the case that when Christians are faced with a sophisticated crowd, maybe, maybe it's a cultured city, professionally influential persons, family members, that bear up influence upon our lives, that Christians find themselves trying to communicate the gospel in a way that tastes better. It's more palatable to their hearers. Please understand, I'm not saying that we ought not be contextualizing or communicating in a way that's understandable. But they'll take and knock off the sharp edges of the gospel and its propositions. Sin becomes sinfulness or fallenness or brokenness rather than an offense against God. Our hearts become sick and they need to get better rather than dead and trespasses and sins. The need for a Savior is that Jesus is placed against all the opposite Saviors of the world and you're given a smorgasbord Will you choose Christ? Will you choose the right one? 
The idea of the virgin birth is concealed, not expressed, because it's unbelievable to people with rational minds. Even though the Bible expects that it was miraculous and not natural, indeed a supernatural grace. The idea of the miracles of Christ, there's silence unless they're humanistic. Maybe there's a spin put upon it. Jesus came because you were the most important thing to him rather than Jesus came to fulfill the righteousness of God for you. With the cross, Jesus is then maybe instead of absolutely shown as the Holy One made guilty who was crucified, maybe the cross is painted up in beautiful hues and tones. Maybe it's made out of metal or wood. It's a piece of art. It's a trinket of formalistic religion rather than the reality of his punishment and death, an instrument of execution. The resurrection cloaked and Easter eggs and bunnies and a whole bunch of ridiculousness rather than the reality of its absolute supernatural metaphysical nature where the Christ of God took up his life again that men just simply cannot explain a thing hidden in the heart of God but the reality of the hope of our life the gospel psychologized into a good civic message of gentleness and kindness world peace rather than a call to faith in a crucified Jesus And you ask the question, why? Why do people do this? Why? Why have I done this? Why do I feel the tug and the pull? Well, it's because of the terrible truth of the depth of our heart that in part or in whole, they or we are ashamed of the message of Jesus and his gospel. People might think we're crazy that we're a superstitious people from the backwoods, that we're weak. They might call our message ridiculous. They may deny the truth of it. They may hate us and deride us or beat us. We may lose influence. Because after all, to believe in those sorts of claims makes us a little bit strange and different. And so the ashamed heart conceals the truth, the extent, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, I'll stand in Rome and I'll proclaim him with a courageous heart that believes in the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of any who will believe. Paul expands on this and gives further expression to it in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks for search of wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. We could put it in other terms and simply say that if man was writing a salvation story, they would never write it like this. No philosophy has ever come near this. No teaching of any other teacher Spewing falsehood has ever gotten close to it. According to the minds of men, this is just silly. But Paul says it's the power of God for those who will be saved. It's the way God wants to do it. It's the way, indeed, God has done it. This word, when he calls it the power of God, it is the potential power. The dynamic hand of God. To whom has the hand of God been revealed? The Old Testament question. It is the extension of the power of God to his creature. And Paul is saying that it is his work, his power to change the hearts and the minds and the lives of men, women, and children. Paul says that's why I'm not ashamed of it. It's what God has ordained. It's the one thing he has appointed to be the powerful extension of his hand. It is the way that he works salvation in us. It's as simple as that. This is what God is doing. That's why I can't be ashamed of it. Christian, why can't you be ashamed of these things if you're a Christian? Because these are the things that God has done. It's what he's done. It's what he's done. It's what he's ordained. It's according to his wisdom, not your wisdom. It's how he's chosen to save men. It's certainly not how we would save men. You see, for us and for ourselves, even if we were to try to make the Christian religion after ourselves, and trust me, men have, We would paint paintings and put them up and bow and light candles. We would have statues chiseled from stone. We would bow down to them. We would construct a system of works and endeavor after them ourselves every single day. Or we would look for unique words, things that we hear in the secret and in the darkness. We would look for spiritual emotions where our hearts are pounding hard and things that we feel rather than the things of God. We 
would look for spiritual entertainment. We would look for things that have nothing to do with the power of God, which is simply that God intends us to hear a message. That's his power. It's a message. Don't get any of this confused. The reality of it is is that the gospel is a message to be heard with ears to be heard with ears and received. They are propositions to be considered and received. Not an experience. Not a bunch of emotions. Not a bunch of works. It's far, 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 far more simple than that. Hearing and believing is how God intends to save anyone and everyone who believes. Secondly, Paul wants us to understand that this gospel, that he's not ashamed of, this power of God, that it is offered to everyone. Offered to everyone. Everyone and anyone who themselves would believe it. That's a wonderful thing. You mean that all I have to do is believe? Yes. And then you may ask the question, well then who can believe? Who can be part of this gospel? Well, Paul answers it to us, doesn't he? First, according to time, it came to the Jews. It came through the Jews, through the covenants that God made with them. They were the chosen people of God and he revealed his mercy through their line, sustaining them generation to generation first to the Jew but then also to the Greek after all Paul is the apostle to the Greeks he's sent to evangelize not only the Greeks but this word meaning a Gentile people any person that wasn't a Jew the whole of the world this would have included Europeans this would have included Africans this would have included Natives of North and South America, this would have included the Aborigines. It means everyone, not just the Greeks, not just people in Rome, but everyone. And Paul is passionate that this is the means of salvation for everyone. It's not that people of Asia have a unique God and a unique means of salvation. It's not that Russians or Jordanians or Mexicans or Canadians or Mississippians have some different method or means. Everyone has a free offer of salvation by hearing and believing in Jesus. But I think we must ask the simple question, what are we talking about being saved from? You're telling me it's a free offer of salvation. I hear you plain enough. But what are we really talking about? Is it being saved from an invading army? Is it being saved from some kind of plague upon the earth? Is it even just being saved from sin? Is that what you mean? Saved from doing bad stuff? It is the power of God to save you from his wrath. What are we talking about? Salvation from an angry God for his creature that has offended him. 
and the wise of the world say, ha, what a ridiculous thing. We can sit in our scoffing, but there will be a day where that reality will be something we face personally and experience uniquely, whether we agree with its reality or not. The free offer of salvation by believing in Jesus is so that man, a sinner, might be saved from God, the righteous one. Let's sort of back up from the text and simply look at it once more. What is Paul saying that he is not ashamed of? He is saying, I'm not ashamed to preach and proclaim that Jesus, the Holy One, was made guilty. That guilty men, by believing in him, may be made holy. I'm not ashamed to proclaim things that the world thinks are foolishness. But the only thing that they can hope in for salvation. Paul is willing to stand upon it because for him, it is his own hope in this life and the life to come. And I invite you this morning to not be ashamed of the gospel, Christian. And I invite you this morning, unbeliever, I invite you to receive Jesus, to cast yourself upon him in the fear of God and in appreciation for his love and simply say, I will have what he has purchased for me by his blood. That is freedom from the wrath of God. Freedom to become a son or a daughter of the Most High God. To not only not be his enemy, but to now be his child. To eat at his table and to drink his drink and to rejoice with him. No longer at war, but rejoicing in the arms of a father. It's simple. Any and everyone can believe, and it is freely offered to you only by believing in him. Would you believe in Christ? Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their teaching. Lord, how they confront us. Lord, I pray that you would conform us into the likeness of Jesus. Make us bold to tell the truth of his gospel. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be merciful to us. That, Lord, you would forgive us where we have failed you. Lord, make us a people that would honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.